Good morning and uh, welcome to the Leeward Campus of Christ community. Uh, we are really glad you're here. I'm Tom Nelson and uh, especially if you're visiting this morning, we want to give you a very warm welcome. You know, it's a great time if you're newer to Kansas City to be a Kansas City sports fan. Uh, I'm sure many of you are, been following the Royals, but I'm also a Chiefs fan. And um, I was really particularly intrigued and inspired by a story, maybe you followed, that, that came out of the Kansas City uh, training camp, the Chiefs training camp. Uh, maybe you uh, followed that Eric Berry, uh, amazing Chiefs player, uh, at the peak of his career and his athletic prowess and his strength, uh, last season came down with a very serious disease, Hodgkin's lymphoma. And uh, if you followed this, you know that remarkably, uh, after he had spent eight months in Atlanta under chemotherapy and radiation and recovery, uh, after only eight months, he has now been cleared by the physicians to play the season for the Chiefs. I think just the other night I watched him play a little bit. But what struck me about Eric Berry is uh, finding himself in this amazing spotlight of the NFL and across the globe. I was struck by how this big, tough, strong, amazing football player in front of a sea of media gave such a picture of transparent vulnerability. He described his fight with cancer with these words. Really, he says, when you look at it, you're not battling the chemo. You're battling yourself the whole time. It was me versus me. There were many times where I didn't know if I would ever wake up tomorrow. I would just be up and up, so scared to go to sleep. See, whether we are battling a life-threatening illness or we uh, are facing something else in life, all of us feel vulnerable, do we not? Don't we find ourselves in places of helplessness, of fearfulness, overwhelmed by life circumstances? When we lay our head on the pillow at night, we may be greeted by some very uninvited and unwanted guests that join us. Companions of fear, anxiety, loneliness, and worry. So what do we do? For one thing, we pray. No matter our spiritual life or background, we often pray. People who face trouble pray. That's the deal. Sometimes it may be a sudden moment when we see the flashing red lights in our rear mirror and things like that, we pray. But often it's a little more substantive than that, a scary diagnosis from a physician, being caught in the sticky web of temptation, or perhaps receiving at work that alarming quarterly report of numbers that are very difficult to see. People who are in trouble pray. All of us love to feel in control, don't we? At the top of our game, we love this thing called self-sufficiency and strength. But rather, our sense of vulnerability and helplessness is what paves the way on the path to prayer. As we enter into the Psalms, there's a foundational truth we are greeted with in the Psalm we are looking at this morning. And that is this truth. It must be be right on our shoulder all through this series. And that truth is that vulnerability is at the heart of prayer. 
Last week we began our psalm series, if you're here, and we, we raised the question, what if we are missing something important in this mysterious challenge of prayer? Instead of focusing in on our tendency, God, are you really listening to me? What if God is saying to us, to you, to me, are you listening to me? What if God is reaching out to us, to you, asking you to be attentive to him? See, in the Psalms, we encounter a God who has already spoken to us. We hear the prayers of a people who are being attentive to him. And the Psalms invite us both as individuals and as a community of faith to be completely transparent before God. To come to him as we are and to be changed by him right where we are. The Psalms, with their breathtaking literary beauty, welcome us, invite us, beckon us to a God-bathed world. They are like a hospitable welcome mat. The psalmist invites all who are weary, all weary souls, to come home to the Father's heart and find true rest in God. Last week, we explored the first two psalms out of the 150 in the book of Psalms. And we noticed that they were not actual prayers, but they are postures that prepare us for prayer. Psalm 1 invites us to a posture of attentiveness. On the heels of Psalm 1 is the second aspect of the posture of prayer. In Psalm 2, we were invited to assume a posture of humble confidence in God. In fact, you were here last week, you know that Psalm 2 ends with the strongest declaration that God is our refuge, our security. Keep that in mind as we now encounter Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is the first actual prayer in the Psalter or the Psalms, and here we find the first step on the path to an attentive with God life What is that first step? As we will see this morning in Psalm 3, that first essential step, that first essential condition of prayer is transparent vulnerability. Transparent vulnerability. When we enter this world of Psalm 3, we are invited into the inner world of a person who finds himself in deep trouble. And as we look at this prayer this morning, we will encounter its threefold poetic progression that is a template for prayer all through the Bible. That's why it's Psalm 3. What we will see is, in this progression in the text, that is this template and primer for prayer, is first an acknowledgement of vulnerability. We will see that in verses 1 and 2, an acknowledgement of vulnerability. Then we'll notice an affirmation of trust in verses 3 and 4. And then in a crescendo, a poetic crescendo, we will see an appeal for rescue in verses 5 through 8. If you want to think of it this way as we enter into this brilliant text, what we encounter is the psalmist's deep emotional prayer that moves from the deepest sense of trouble to the deepest sense of trust. From deep trouble to deep trust. So you ready? The welcome mat is open to you and to me. Let's enter. First, you will notice in this prayer that prayer acknowledges our vulnerability. You'll notice above verse 1, there's what's called in literature a superscript. It's it's a little um, 
sentence or phrase that is not a part of the inspired Hebrew text, but it sets the context for which the prayer is written. And it's beautiful that we are given this through a long line of tradition. It says, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, it's important for us to understand that there's a context to Psalm 3, and we are told in this prayer that in this literary clue before the prayer, that this is the life of King David. King David is who wrote this, and it's one of the darkest, most painful times in David's life. It's a time when his own son, Absalom, betrays him in this conspiratorial coup to take over his throne. And I encourage you very strongly to read 2 Samuel 15 and 16 that gives more of the historical texture of this brilliant prayer. It will light up this prayer in HD form for you. But let me highlight a little bit of it because I know you probably are hungry and want to finish at noon. <laughs> Absalom means, and this is important in the Hebrew context, we don't see this in English, but right away we are, have this dissonance in our literary heart that Absalom in Hebrew means Abishalom, father of peace. And Absalom is anything but peace. In fact, he lusted for power. The seduction maiden of power overwhelmed him. He was willing to do anything to have power. And the text in 2 Samuel says, for four years, he plotted, he connived, he cultivated favor to overthrow his father in a coup. And even so much so that David's most trusted advisor, Ahithophel, begins to be traitorous and joins Absalom in the conspiracy. Now, he's a good son. He sets it up and he goes and tells his dad, I'm going to worship at Hebron. But when he goes to Hebron, he establishes his kingdom and declares himself king. The conspiracy builds, and you want to read this, it's really amazing, and a lot of people join Absalom. But David flees for his life from Jerusalem, and he leaves Jerusalem heading east down to Jericho in a trail of tears. But he doesn't just stop in Jericho, he heads at what I said growing up in Minnesota, in the boonies, the eastern Jordan. He moves way out in the wilderness. And as he's going down to Jericho, this character named Shammai, this hate-filled opportunist, Notice David is down and he gets him while he's down. He pummels him with his words and he curses him. And basically he says, David, you're utterly undone, dude. And David is absolutely pummeled by Shammai's word. He feels small and fragile. Can you walk in David's sandals? Absalom arrives in Jerusalem. He does all kinds of unthinkable things. You can read it. But he does, is there only long enough to declare he's the big guy. He's the king on the hill. He displays his glorious triumph and then off he races to the east in hot pursuit of David with his army. What's it like to be in David's shoes? Do you feel what he feels? Can you imagine how low this is? Somewhere in a barren wilderness in Jordan, miles and miles or kilometers, kilometers away from home, Imagine as evening darkness settles in and fills the Judean air and lonely and weary and fearful and deeply, deeply wounded King David gets on his knees and cries out to God. Look at me at verses one and two. Oh Lord, oh Lord. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying in my soul, there is no salvation or rescue for him in God. Selah. And there's a pause. I want you to notice very carefully, attentively, 
that the the Psalter, the 150 books of Psalms, and David's Psalm begins by David acknowledging his overwhelming feelings of helplessness and vulnerability. Think with me for a moment. Here is the same David who in his youth had courageously conquered the giant of Goliath, now as an older man comes face to face with the fearsome giant of his own helplessness. Overwhelming odds, insurmountable obstacles. And poetically, I want you to notice in the first three stanzas, you will observe something important, the repetition of the word many, and the Hebrew text is more pronounced. Notice also the psalmist, and we will notice this through the series, but the psalmist really sets the frame here, the poetic frame here through poetic parallelism. I know that's an impressive word you can tell your friends you learned in church, but poetic parallelism is very important here. It's when you say something, and basically you say the same thing, only a little different way, right back to back. Why is that so important? Because poetically, David is expressing the intense emotion with his parallel poetry of his feeling. David is at the lowest edge. His feeling is deep. He's crying out to God. He's deeply wounded. And notice in the text, he's also wounded not only by betrayal. Can you imagine that by your son? But the others who are telling him like Shammai, you've had it, David. You've had it. You're done. God can't even rescue you the wounds of betrayal and of a friend dig deep and wound us, do they not? Yet, isn't it amazing that rather than saying to God, God, where were you? Why have you let this happen in my life? There's no sense of embitterment toward God for his son's evil action and all that's happened to him or his circumstances. David, notice, transparently cries out to God and he acknowledges honestly, transparently, his absolute vulnerability and helplessness before God. Now, many of us tend to push back, don't we, in our culture against vulnerability? Because our acknowledgement of it seems to suggest weakness. None of us want to be weak. But acknowledgement of our vulnerability from a biblical standpoint is not a sign of personal weakness, but an indicator of heart meekness. Meekness or humility is a proper assessment of our puniness before Almighty God. And it's the foundation of reality and the life of prayer. Maybe you can relate to David this morning as you walk in his sandals across the sands of time. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you're feeling your life circumstances are such a mess they can never be straightened out. Or your past is so bad God couldn't ever forgive you. Or your finances are so frightening they can never turn you around. Or you're so lonely you can't imagine being intimate again with someone. Or your marriage is so hurtful it could never be loving again, could it? Or your work is so overwhelming your boss is so difficult. So demanding. You can't ever imagine going to work again tomorrow morning being energized by your career. Or maybe you are wrestling with prayers that seem to go unanswered. How are you going to respond? How am I going to respond? This psalm asks us this question with Selah. When we find ourselves in that place, how do we respond? Will we dig in our heels of unbelief? Will we dismiss God? 
Or will we, like David, the most powerful king at that time, in absolute vulnerability, get on your knees and cry out to God? See, we often hear from skeptics of faith. I hear this often from friends who don't believe. Say, Tom, prayers for the weak. And usually they expect me to be defensive as a pastor, right? I'm supposed to defend prayer. And I just say, you're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. But what they don't expect is what I say next. I will look at them and say, history, logic, philosophy, the best thinking of human life tells us that everyone is weak. And the difference is some acknowledge it and others deny it. But death puts an exclamation point over everyone. See, vulnerability is an escapable need of the human condition, whether we acknowledge it or not. I don't know if you followed Brene Brown, this wonderful social researcher. In fact, her TED Talk a few years ago was, and still is, one of the most highly viewed uh, TED Talks in the world. And encourage, if you've not heard Brene Brown, her short talk, 20-minute talk on vulnerability, it's brilliant. And it's needed for you to understand. It's so good. But she says this in her talk, a key ingredient of her research in wholeheartedness or human flourishing. That's what she describes the good life. She says this, vulnerability is the birthplace of connection, of intimacy, joy, love, and gratitude. It's the birthplace. But isn't it amazing, with all due respect to Brene Brown and her brilliance and her research, she's not the first one to discover this bedrock truth. Can you imagine this? Over 3,000 years ago, the Hebrew poet who penned this psalm knew it too. And the ones who organized all the psalms knew this too because Psalm 3, the first prayer, is centered in the birthplace of intimacy, and that is vulnerability. <laughs> the place of connection. Do you see how he begins with this declaration of human vulnerability? Because vulnerability is not only the birthplace of intimacy, it is the birthplace of prayer. It is condition number one. Tim Keller in his book on prayer, it's a good book, he quotes Ole Housby, a theologian and pastor, he says this, this is what Ole Housby says. As far as I can see, prayer has been ordained only for the helpless. <laughs> prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Now listen to what he says. This rips me. Only he who is helpless can truly pray. See, deep places of trouble lead to deep trust in God. I've learned this over the years. I still am learning it. I remember when Liz and I were uh, just married and we were transferred in this parachurch ministry we were serving, a college student ministry, to Southern Methodist University. The place, I mean, Dallas was booming. There was no place to live. And we drove down to Dallas feeling deeply vulnerable. Few resources, no place to live. And God, in his timing and power, rescued us and provided for us this wonderful place right next to SMU. Early in our marriage, we learned that our vulnerability is God's glorious opportunity. And it opens the door to increase faith and prayerful intimacy with God. As David prayer 
as it begins to build poetically, you feel hope rising on the thermal currents of God's goodness. His heart is overflowing. A fearful David notice in the poet, in the poetry, in the poem, and the in the prayer here that what happens is he moves from a sense of vulnerability, do you see it, to a sense of hopeful security, a sense of safety. David now moves from vulnerability to affirming God's a trust in God. This is the second movement of prayer. Vulnerability and trust. Notice verse 3, the abrupt contrast. But you, do you see that? It is very emphatic in the Hebrew text. But you, it's a deep contrast. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. King David was a powerful warrior. You remember that in the story, he was a military strategist. He knew that the two best friends of a military warrior in that time was a sword for offense and a shield for defense. So he brings this metaphor picture of a, of a defensive weapon that protected the vital organs of the heart and all of that person. And here, poetically, he pictures God as a great warrior protecting him with this massive and impenetrable shield around him. And let's not forget that David um, echoes what God says to Abram in Genesis 15, I am your shield. David's own Vulnerability is overwhelming him, but now you'll notice vulnerability vanishes as the fog of fear lifts and God puts his mighty shield around him. Notice the phrase, lifter of my head. This poetic phrase, David is saying to God, God, your strong, omnipotent hand is my pillow. The moment of my greatest vulnerability and despondency, you lift my head, you give me hope. As a king and a soldier, David knew he was the most vulnerable at night when his enemy could ambush him, right? At any moment from the shadows, with no warning while he's asleep, he is deeply emotionally wounded. And yet he's affirming his trust in God to protect him, to care for him. Notice in his most vulnerable moments, when he tucks himself in bed under the Jordanian sky with the contract out on his life and Absalom's hoofbeats in hot pursuit. Far away from Jerusalem, his home, David continues to pray that God will hear his evening prayer. He declares, you'll notice in the prayer, God's presence is with him in the wilderness of Jordan and God hears his prayers. This is the one shepherd boy who pens Psalm 23, who knows who his shepherd is. Even though he is walking through the valley of the shadow of death and he knows it, his good shepherd was right there with him. It was not just Absalom that was pursuing him. Yes, surely goodness and mercy of Almighty God was pursuing him and would not let him go. Against the dark of the night and the bleakness of his circumstances, can you imagine David lays down to rest? And in verse 5, the prayerful structure of the text is that David slept like a baby. He wakes up. You feel it in the poem and in the prayer. It's a new morning, but it's not a new set of circumstances. Don't miss that. Absalom and his army are still in hot pursuit. David's powerful enemies are not gone, but his paralyzing fear is gone. There is a new perspective that is rising. David's fearful feelings of vulnerability have changed to trust. Now, let's not miss something important. David's answer to prayer is evident within the progression of the prayer of the psalmist himself. That God has answered David's prayer within the prayer. 
For David's crippling fear is now replaced with confident faith. Do you see that? And now there's an emboldened David who offers up a prayer rescue. Prayer doesn't always change our circumstances immediately, even how we always like to, but prayer changes us. And here it is right in the prayer. David is changed. His circumstances aren't. And he appeals to God for rescue. Do you see that in verse 7? David metaphorically asks God to wake him up and also that God would wake up. There's a bit of playfulness in the poetry here. It's like God, he's saying, rub, rub the sleep out of your eyes, God. Just like I'm doing, you're on the present eyes and the dawn of a new day, now save me. Save me, oh God. And notice the text. It's not just the self-absorption that he's concerned about. He says, don't only protect me from my enemies, deal with my enemies. Don't miss this. He says, give them their just desserts. David rightly wants justice done. He knows how God hates evil and injustice in the world. But notice he says, it's not by my hands, God, but your hands. He doesn't say to God, oh, let me at him. Let me at Absalom. He says, no, Lord, you take care of him. Now notice again the explicit poetic parallelism in verse 7. This causes us to slow down and to reflect on the intense emotions that David is feeling and appealing to God of injustice in the world. Injustice toward him but to the enemies of God. David is dealing with egregious injustice and wrongdoing. He's angry at the grip of evil that had captured his precious son's heart as well as all the others that he loved that had betrayed him. So here's the prayer. Here's the progression. Facing deep trouble, David cries out to God in prayer. He, first, he acknowledges his vulnerability. That's where prayer begins. All prayer. He affirms his trust in God, and then he boldly asks God to rescue him. So what are we to learn and apply from Psalm 3? Now, I mentioned this last week a bit, but I want to press more into it because it's so important for us not to miss. Let's first remember, friends, that the Psalms, all 150 of them, were the prayer book of Jesus when he was on earth in his incarnational form. Not only do the Psalms speak of Jesus and point to Jesus, Jesus learned these Psalms at the feet of his mother Mary as soon as he could speak or hear, which is very early. He heard them recited in his home by his guardian father around the, the table and the Jewish feasts and holidays. He heard them every week in Shabbat and Sabbath in the synagogues as they were recited. Some of Jesus' first memorization of Scripture had to have been the Psalms. And his last words on the cross were an echoing of the Psalms. The Psalms shaped the contours and content of Jesus' prayer life. And they are given to us to do the same. Let's not forget that the disciples of Jesus saw Jesus do the most amazing miracles, did he not? The most brilliant teaching, but it was Jesus' prayer that stunned them the most. In fact, these clueless, unteachable disciples like you and me asked Jesus to teach them something. The only time in the Gospels they do this is Jesus teaches to pray. Where did Jesus learn, quote, how to pray? 
Jesus invites them into the school of prayer and he gives them a template of prayer that so closely echoes the Psalms, we must not miss it. And it's called what? The Lord's Prayer. Woven through the fabric of the Lord's Prayer are three threads. Hmm. Vulnerability, trust, and rescue. We hear the transparent vulnerability of the human condition for physical sustenance, don't we? Give us this day our daily bread. We hear the transparent vulnerability of our need for emotional connection, of spiritual well-being, and relational wholeness when we hear Jesus teach us, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And the Lord's prayer ends with the echo of the affirmation of confidence and trust in the ultimate rescue of the heavenly Father as we petition him his kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was martyred for his faith wrote of the Psalms these words. But not only is Jesus Christ the goal of our prayer, he himself also accompanies us in prayer. He who has suffered every want has brought it before God, has prayed for our sake in God's name, not my will, but thine. See, Psalm 3 invites us, as well as the Lord's Prayer and all their connectivity, to embrace the attentive life of prayerful intimacy with God. Because our prayerful life or our prayerless life speak volumes about the condition of our inner world. The vitality of our prayer life tells us a great deal whether we are embracing vulnerability, where we are finding our security, and how we are experiencing God's rescue. So let me ask three questions of application. I'd like you to write them down and think about them this week. First, am I embracing vulnerability? In Jesus' great invitation, we are invited to embrace vulnerability. Jesus said, remember, that unless we become like children, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. The difference between adults and children are many, but one of the core differences is children know they're vulnerable. Adults refuse to admit they are. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus gives us the most amazing invitation. It's a grace-filled invitation that is based on his shed blood on the cross, and it offers you and me, the God-bathed world, the attentive life, the God-with life of apprenticeship and intimacy. He says, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the yoke of Christ we attend to Jesus and Jesus attends to us. Submission, obedience, and vulnerability are the currency of apprenticeship. And intimacy bursts forth. He walks with us, the hymnal writer says, right? He walks with us and talks with us. He tells us that we are his own and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. This is the one omnipotent God who is all-powerful. Yet Jesus says, I am gentle and humble of heart and you can trust me with everything in your life even when you don't understand it all. I am the one who brings healing, wholeness, security. I will rescue you from the enemies of the soul you are facing. So what enemies of the soul are you facing? Secondly, where am I finding security? 
See, whether we pray or how we pray or what we pray so often reveals what the answer to that question is for us. Where do I find my security? Is our bedrock security in God alone? With the psalmist, can we say in the midst of the fearful circumstances you're facing today, that I'm facing today, the trouble you're facing in your life, Lord, you are a shield about me. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Many of us, I fear, are looking in the wrong places to find the security we were created to have and we long for at a heart level. They may be good things, but they're not ultimate. Maybe our intellectual prowess, size of our investment portfolio, our spouse, the impressive resume of friends we have. See, what we cling to most, what we most boast about, at least inside, is what reveals where our true security is. The prophet Jeremiah says it brilliantly. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows and understands me and no means intimate, not cognitive, that he knows me. Security is ultimately found in intimacy with Jesus. Are we listening? Are we being attentive? Are we being fully present? Are we finding our security in him? And lastly, let me ask you the question, how am I experiencing God's rescue in my life? How are you experiencing God's rescue? Again, what enemies of the soul do you need God to rescue you from today? Are you fearful? God won't fail you or won't be there for you? Perhaps the enemy of the soul is an ongoing tough sin in your life that's had a stranglehold on you. Will you cry out to God in vulnerable trust? God, deliver me. Release its tenacious hold in my heart. Maybe you're struggling with an enslaving temptation or addiction or you have a fearful and lonely heart this morning that's being hijacked by having to have approval of others and you're imprisoned by the approval of others. Maybe you need God's protection this week from the wounding words of a friend or a person or a coworker or a classmate. Maybe you need God's provision for wisdom and a tough business decision that's keeping you up all night. Where do you right now need God to rescue you? Where? And will you rest in him knowing he is attending to you? Will you in faith rest in Jesus, the good shepherd who attends to you, even when he's not attending to you in the way you expect or think he should or in the timing he should? See, the good news of the gospel tells us that Jesus ultimately rescues us from the enemy of sin and death. And you will notice if you go back through the prayer three times, this prayer is structured around the word we get from Messiah, Yeshua, salvation, salvation, salvation. And it ends with this hopeful end. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be to your people. Psalm three cranes its neck to the end of the story of God's ultimate rescue. The day in the new heavens and new earth when there'll be more, no more tears, suffering, dying, or pain. In the last book of the Bible, the Apostle Paul has given us this glimpse of a redeemed people from every tribe and nation having been rescued, worshiping God. In Revelation 7, verse 10, we hear these words that echo Psalm 3. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come, he has died, He is risen, he will come again. Think about it, the most invulnerable being in the universe became vulnerable for us, for you, 
He took on vulnerable human flesh, so vulnerable as a baby in a cave in Palestine 2,000 years ago in a manger. He died on a Roman cross vulnerably so that you and I might be rescued from a life of futility and an eternity apart from God. Psalm 3 reminds us that vulnerability is the path to rescue. It also reminds us, and we must never forget it, that vulnerability is the birthplace of prayer. Let's pray. Father, teach us to pray. We come to you as a people who are vulnerable, who are needy. And we look to you with confidence that you are our salvation. You are our good and glorious and grace-filled rescuer.